Star Trek Picard Season 1, Episode 2, Maps and Legends, is over. But we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lease, and here with me is an actual legend of the podcasting community, Mr. Mike Bloom. Mike, are you ready to get into this? Hell yeah. That was almost human. With the intensity. Now you you stumbled upon my secret, Jess. Just don't let me anywhere near the controls, and I think we'll be okay. Boy, I I, got, I just got to make sure nobody hacks you, and we'll be okay to do this podcast. Yeah, that's our assumption, right? I mean, not to get too jump into things too quickly, but when we see that, when I admit, pretty brutal flashback scene, which I know we talked last week about how there was a chance that we might not see that at all to actually see the attack on Mars, but see exactly what went down. We assume that the you know, uh, various shades of lights and worrying that was going on before, behind poor F8's eyes meant that something was taking his mind beyond his control. I'm saying, Mike, it goes back to what I was talking about last week. It's the Internet of Things. Somebody is going to hack your toaster and then it will go rogue and you will all be dead. Well, it reminds me a bit, actually, of Discovery Season 2 when we had the late uh, Lieutenant Commander Arium, and when she was taking over by control, I believe there was also a similar sequence, actually, where, like, we saw her eyes turn a certain color, and then that also, surprisingly enough, in a very similar situation, had her going over to a control booth and, you know, futzing with the controls so that nobody could get in. So, I mean, maybe this also connects to, like, a distant version of control as well, which would be a, a redonkulous way to connect Disco and Picard, but... A less depressing way to connect Star Trek series, considering what we're going to get into with the uh, appearance of the Weir's father from Freaks and Geeks coming up here. <laughs> yeah, everything everything comes around to, hey, it's that guy from that show. It, it certainly does. But before we get into all of that, we have to take a moment to thank our sponsor, without whom this podcast truly would not be possible, because our episode this week is brought to you once again by Star Trek Picard, now streaming on CBS All Access. Mike, take it away. So, you might have stumbled into this podcast and wondered, what the heck is Star Trek Picard? And just like the first two episodes of Picard, we are going to throw a bunch of information at you right now, so have fun juggling. Now streaming only on CBS All Access, A Legend Returns. Sir Patrick Stewart reprises his iconic role as Captain Jean-Luc Picard in the highly anticipated original series, Star Trek Picard. Follow this hero on an unexpected mission as he travels into the far reaches of the galaxy and battles against the odds to fight for what's right. With help from a new crew of complicated, funny, and memorable characters, Picard's boundary-pushing adventures promises to extend the captain's legacy, defying expectations along the way. And Mike, I'm given to understand that Stuart will also be joined by beloved cast members from across the Star Trek universe, including Brent Spiner, Jerry Ryan, and Jonathan Frakes. The journey is about to begin, so sign up today for CBS All Access by visiting cbs.com slash postshow. That's cbs.com slash postshow. Get your first week of CBS All Access for free and stream Star Trek Picard now. And in fact, get up and go do that and then come back and listen to the rest of us. But I'm so pleased that uh, they are continuing to sponsor us, Mike. Yeah, and also, if, if you don't even want to leap to CBS All Access to see if, you know, dip your toes in the water and see if this is for you, I believe actually in the day we're recording this, they just released the Picard pilot on YouTube under CBS All Access's account for free. 
So you can watch the entire 45-minute pilot, listen to our podcast, and if you decide, all right, let's engage in that content, then you can actually go to CBS All Access, use the code we just provided, and check out episode two, which we are about to spoil in great detail. Yeah, I would recommend that if you have not gotten this far in the process, it's probably good to go back and do that. But you know, Mike... I am starting to come around to the realization that there are many different ways to appreciate a television show and many different levels on which you can understand it. And if one of those levels is you're not actually watching the show, you're just listening to us talk about it, I guess that's okay. I'm not, I'm not here to judge you. But the thing that made me realize it was this afternoon reading through the first two comic books that serve as prequels to the Picard series and suddenly gaining this much deeper understanding of what is actually going on on the show and being kind of flabbergasted that you have to read this comic to really get under what is going on with these Romulans. Right. And I mean, we sort of talked about that with the short tracks a bit as well, right? Especially when it came to Discovery, they ended up tying a lot of it into it that, you know, they tried their best to sort of shoehorn in exposition if you didn't exactly know what Zahian was before season two of Discovery. But still, it was almost like extracurricular reading, but turned out to really help you on your final exam. And yeah, we talked about this last week. Uh, there was a comic book called Picard Countdown that came out with two issues before Picard premiered. And I believe the third issue landed at the end of last week, right after the premiere that took place before the events of Star Trek Picard. Uh, I believe it actually took place before the attack on Mars during the Romulan evacuation. And yeah, a lot of information to be filled in. Uh, You know, there's still going to be some information that corresponds to Next week, when it seems like we're really going to get to know Rafi Musiker after finding out about her at the end of this episode, played by Michelle Hurd, but especially from a Romulan perspective, where, surprise, surprise, it turns out the Romulans are going to be a big part of this season, but maybe not in a way that we initially expected. Uh, I guess the biggest takeaway is that our characters, Laris and Jabon, who we thought were just Picard's Romulan housekeepers, <laughs> were actually just former members of the Tall Shiar and just decided to take up wine keeping in their semi-retirement well they were keeping the wine the whole time they were under deep cover apparently they just kind of moved out to yeah they moved to this romulan outpost which is like the wine planet and looks like a pretty cool place and as they were they were they presented themselves as these lowly agrarians got super into the wine thing got super into each other but also they were talshiar yeah, and, uh, you know, I'll spoil a bit of, of issue three, but, you know, their mission essentially was to work their way into Picard's inner circle so they could eventually take control of the Verity, which is the ship that Picard and Raffi, who is his former number one, not to be confused with the dog, uh, was, and to essentially take control of that and be able to appropriate that in, in, on behalf of the tall Shi'ar. And that's the other interesting thing as well that I think is going to tie into back to the flashback discussion as to, okay, if the synths were operated by some sort of separate entity to do this horrible, horrible attack, who could it have been? We start to find out via the Picard Countdown comic books that the Romulans were not exactly greeting the Federation with open arms when Picard proposed this mass evacuation. In fact, their first suspicion was suspicion. They were very concerned that the Federation was using this as some sort of ruse to get one over on them, to get their secrets, and to, you know, 
take them over. And so, especially when we find out about the Jat Vash, which I'm sure we both have a lot of thoughts about with the reveal of this secret Romulan cabal, you can imagine that perhaps it wouldn't be too out of the realm of possibility for them to operate a similar attack on humanity if they are even suspicious of the most humanitarian effort. Well, I think that goes back to here's what Romulans are all about, Mike. And I think it's weird. We've had Romulans in every iteration of Star Trek up until this point. And it was really not until the beginning of this series that I really felt like I understood where they were coming from and what their whole deal is. Uh, Romulans are very deeply distrustful of everything and everybody. And they just assume the worst out of everyone. And so if somebody comes and offers to help you, it is very clear that it is a Trojan horse. Like in Romulan world, that means they're just coming in pretending to help you so that they can screw you over and like take all your cloaking technology. And we knew, for example, that Romulans had like, when they were getting into the Dominion War, we knew they had the superior cloaking that the Federation couldn't match and they didn't know how it worked and getting the Romulans on their side against the Dominion was kind of a big deal. And we've seen, we've seen the Romulans interact with every captain up to this point. But here, I think this is the first true deep dive into the psychology of a Romulan. Yeah, I mean, listen, if you drank Romulan ale every time you heard the word secret in this episode, <laughs> you'd be like Worf from the beginning of Star Trek Nemesis, just hung over and hating your life. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, those are kind of the, the takeaways you know about Romulans. You know, they look like Vulcans. You know, they love secrets. And you know, they got some killer blue drink. Yeah, exactly. Though it seems like, I'm assuming, uh, speaking of blue, I guess it's a dry cube, I'm assuming. I don't see them really partaking in anything. Though I guess they're also devoted to their work that are not necessarily partaking in any disco-era parties after, you know, the whistle blows. Well, you know, I think they figured out a lot of things after disco. And one of those things is maybe, maybe don't party quite so hard. That's true, though. Let's remember that all mentions of Discovery was erased from Starfleet records. So maybe, unless it's like the Jat Vash, this is some sort of like myth that's been communicated through the years in Starfleet that hasn't been officially on the records, but everyone sort of seems to know about it. Like maybe the, maybe the true secrets that's be, that are being hidden by eradicating all mentions of Discovery are the secrets to how to throw a really banging kegger. Yeah, one that you could celebrate again and again and again. Uh, I, I feel like there are so many like revelations to talk about. I was surprised because we talked about this last week that, you know, I felt like while the first episode was awesome, it was a lot to take in. It was a little bit of a data dump and we did literally dump <laughs> data and we continued that this time. Uh, it's really interesting. There's a really fascinating ready room this week with Will Wheaton and the guest is Akiva Goldsman, who's one of the, the co-creators. And he really talks about how Disco is like a sci-fi action show, but Picard is much more like a sci-fi drama show. And so from that perspective, uh, if you look at it through that lens, you really do see why they want to keep up some of the more theatrics and keeping twist after twist going on. Because I would say, Jess, from a canonical perspective, the reveal of the Jat Vash is pretty damn huge. Yeah, well, it's like, you thought the Tal Shiar were secret. Well, the Tal Shiar have an even secreter secret. It's like a, it's an ancient Tal Shiar myth that the Jat Vash are like, they're so secret, even the Tal Shiar doesn't know about them. And they have an even more secret secret. And this felt like, this felt like we were cutting too far down into the onion, if you're asking me. I, I'm not sure how I feel about the Tal, Tal Shiar and Jat Vash of it all. 
I am inclined to agree with you at this point. You know, this is always one of the dangers when it comes to revisiting Trek is like, and we experienced this with Disco a bit, and this is not as big as, say, for example, Michael Burnham being Spock's adopted <laughs> sister who he never talks about. But this is still something that sort of really makes you look at the past canon of Trek in a very different light. And it almost feels a bit unnecessary just because the Tal Shiar already felt so secret. It doesn't feel like we needed another secret on that secret, you know? You could only add so much cheese to your nachos before it's just a big ball of cheese with some chips sticking out of it uh, that are as pointy as Romulan ears. And, you know, I'm assuming this is going to become a, a big part of what's come, considering that apparently one of our main characters is a member of the Jat Vash, let alone a couple of members of the uh, the head-ups at Starfleet. But it just felt like a reveal for the sake of reveal. And I'm, I'm still not sure how I, I feel about it, just because it's something that doesn't resonate particularly well with me looking back on what we know about the Romulan so far and not necessarily wanting that history to completely be rewritten that the secret cabal exists that apparently might have been pulling the strings the whole time. Yeah, the fact that they're sitting on like some kind of HP Lovecraft secret where if you find out what it is, it will destroy you from within. I thought that was a little bit dramatic, too. Yeah, well, apparently, you know, according to Soji, the Romulans do have a flair for the dramatics, as we find out from, like, the scariest orientation session <laughs> ever above about the, the Borg cube. But, I mean, I, I guess from that perspective, I mean, do you think it's literal? Do you think it's just, like, it's a secret about why synthetic technology is so bad, and that's why they're out to destroy it? Because I guess the reason why they wanted to bring up the idea of the Jat Vach is I think they really wanted to bring up you know, there is inherent anti-synth bias where we start Picard, but I think they really want to, like, make it part of a sex faith, almost. And it does seem what is very scary to the Jat Vash right now with how it pertains to the plot of Picard is that this is a group of people that want to eradicate any amount of synthetic technology from the universe to the point where when we get, you know, this weirdly... I'm going to say oddly romantic conversation between Rizzo and her brother, Narek, at the end of that. Mike. It was like it was weirdly tense. It was weirdly tense. Uh, but, you know, they they say that I think uh, Rizzo says, you know, talk to that thing and ask where the nests are and where its other objects are. Like, they're not regarding them as people. And Picard would obviously blanch at that idea. But I think, you know, if you're taking a look at where these biases may stem from and who has sort of been profligating them into the universe, you start with the Jat Vash, which again goes back to them probably being the most likely source at this point where if the Mars attack was an inside job, they were probably the ones doing it to promote their agenda. Yeah, it's interesting because of the way that these two big inciting events happened at pretty much the exact same time. Like you had the right. Mars attack, and then shortly after that, you had the Federation pulling out of, of evacuating Romulus. And so I need to connect the dots on this here. I need to understand, you know, if there are Romulans behind the Mars attack, and also every time I say Mars attacks, I think of Tom Jones and aliens with big brains. Yeah. Yeah, or going like, nom, 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 or whatever their little language was. Yeah, ack, 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 ack. Um, yeah, that's where my mind goes every single time. But if, you know, if I'm to understand that the Romulans, that some faction of Romulans were behind the attack on Mars, how does that play in? Was that an intentional thing to divert Federation attention away 
from the evacuation? Or was it like a hor- horrible side effect? It's like, oh, everyone on my planet died because I was fomenting a terrorist attack. Mm, yeah, that could be interesting as well. I mean, we're talking about the guilt that Picard is harboring uh, for certain, obviously, the loss of data and obviously the subsequent actions that happen. But it would be interesting if the Jat Vach had this big plan to be like, okay, we're going to, you know, have everyone promote this anti-synth ban by having the synths attack them only for them to essentially shoot themselves in the foot by screwing themselves out of the big armada that was going to evacuate them. Though it sounds like from as well entrenched as they were, apparently, you know, seating themselves across many different species in the galaxy, it seems like maybe they personally were not in that much danger of any sort of supernova coming their way, assuming they were not situated on the home planet, but regardless, it's a, it's a weird way to promote the Romulan agenda by ending up killing so many Romulans. It may turn out that the Romulans were just like, the Federation comes up and rolls up on Romulus and is, is, is like, hey, there's a supernova, it's going to destroy your planet. And they just didn't want to tell them, we already figured out how to evacuate, we're good, you don't, we don't need you, because then they have to explain why and how, and it gets very like anti-Romulan. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And Again, we're going to find out a lot more about it, considering that not only is Narek one, uh, apparently, Jess, I mean, we might now be on the lookout for, like, who a secret Romulan might be, considering we have, we are introduced this episode to Lieutenant Rizzo, who apparently is a Romulan. We're introduced to Commodore O, who seems to be, I guess, someone in charge of security, who uh, the Admiral that Picard speaks to, checks in with to be like, hey, Picard came in here with some loony ramblings about, uh, you know, the, the some sort of weird Romulan uprising like that's not happening right and she <laughs> appears as a Vulcan but she could be a Romulan I mean it's also very easy Jess not to go back to the whole you know all Romulans and Vulcans look alike thing but it's pretty easy <laughs> to just e- disguise yourself as a Vulcan if you're a Romulan how dare you Mike uh, but uh, here's the question here's what I want to know uh, do you think we're going to have more secret Romulans on this show or secret synths Mm. Yes, I know uh, we got a question about that. Uh, I, you know, I think it was sort of like a comparison to like a, a Westworld type of thing or even like a, a BSG uh, question from Bill basically saying, do you think we'll get a, a reveal mid-season that a main character is a secret synth? I, see, I would say that if we didn't get it in the first episode. That's a good point. You know? We already got our secret synth, and now now everyone we encounter from here on out is just going to be a Romulan. Right. I guess the only thing would be if Soji, I don't believe, I don't know, we find out a lot more about Soji this episode, just from, from a personality perspective, from a professional perspective, uh, I think we could definitely talk about what the Romulan Reclamation Project is, but, you know, it turns out that she is indeed Dodge's twin sister, and they were part of the same family. They both share the this, this same last name of Asha. They made calls to each other. It makes it even weirder to me that last week, when Dodge is going through this weird awakening process, her sister's the first per- not the first person she calls, but maybe in joining this project, Soji has sort of like cut off communication from the mainland. I'm not entirely sure. But you can imagine if Dodge didn't necessarily know about it until Picard had to inform her and really break the news to her. You can imagine Soji is probably in the same boat, right? At least for the moment. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. And I want to back up here for a second. Um, while Picard is on his hunt to find more information about Soji, he seems weirdly stunned to discover that she is not located on Earth, as if this is not a show about people going to space. 
<laughs> well, I guess I, he's been earthbound for a while at this point. Yeah, I want to talk about that because it's such an interestingly done series of scenes. I know we're jumping all over the place, but what I'm speaking about is, you know, I'd say in the first, like, I think second act of the episode or so, or maybe the extended first act, there are two scenes that alternate back and forth. One is back at the Chateau, Picard, Laris, and Jabon, where Laris and Jabon explain to Picard what the Jat Vash is. And then the other scene is what I like to call CSI Picard, <laughs> where it's Picard and Laris exploring Dodge's apartment to essentially see, and basically it gets confirmed that, okay, the Romulans obviously tampered with it, they scrubbed it all clean, but through some fun Star Trek-esque techno babble, they were able to find like a, a, a smidge of a call record that shows that, to your point, Soji is indeed off-planet. But maybe this speaks towards the more cinematic quality of the 2010 Star Trek, Jess, but I can't remember for the life of me any other types of Star Trek scenes that were edited like this, with consistently flipping back and forth between two different settings. I thought it was a really effective way to get information out there without completely overwhelming somebody all at once. Yeah, it was it was definitely something new. I think Disco has played with this idea a little bit more. I think I've seen I've seen scenes in across the Disco universe that have sort of done this, but this is the first like real, like we're going to give you this non-linear. We're going to flip back and forth in time to reveal information on two parallel paths. And I, I agree. It was very effective and it was gripping without being confusing. And I thought that was, it was, it was extremely well done. And I think the, uh, yeah, he's figuring out information about one sister and he's figuring out, things about another sister at the same time, but not really at the same time. So, yeah. Right. And it goes back, it goes back to this idea of, like, twins, and even though, again, Dodge is dead, these sort of, like, parallel paths, they, they might have been on. The only thing I was confused by is what Picard and Laris picked up to access the call log, because it looked to me like a pair of metal chopsticks at first, but maybe just seems like some sort of device that they can use at any point in time to, to access her logs, unless that's like, you could like go into any sort of device in your apartment and they're all hooked up to the clouds so that could all tell you the same information. Well, you know, my high school math teacher used to be very fond of telling us that you can do anything on a slide rule that you can do on a computer. Ah, okay. So maybe they, maybe she's, you know, Soji's a fan of working on artifacts. Maybe Dodge was a fan of literal artifacts. Maybe so. I, I'm not sure exactly what that thing was. I think it was just like a, it was like a laptop, but you don't need a monitor anymore because it's the future. Right. And like everything can be your interface. Yeah. It's the Internet of Things, Mike. Yeah, that's true. And again, we saw part of that in the beginning. What did you think, by the way, of that flashback? Because again, we talked last week about whether or not we felt it was necessary. Now that we've seen it in all its brutality, did you get any value from starting the episode off in Mars 14 years ago? I did because I think raises a lot of questions. And it was kind of, you got a little bit of levity from it too, because you had these people, it's, the, it's kind of the first, the first time we've ever seen someone on Star Trek hate their job, which I think is interesting. <laughs> and you have a couple of things. You have these, you have these androids that look like the albino blue man group. The yes, the I, I was I guess the pale man group is that what we can call them? Yeah, yeah, the uh, the gray man group, exactly. Who all live in their little storage unit that people probably bid for on Storage Wars, right? 
and they just sort of, you just put them in a closet when you're done with them and you teach them how to say things that entertain you, which I guess is probably how any of us would deal with the same sort of Android technology. Let's be real. Um, but then we get a couple of things that make you wonder what is going on with that attack. And, you know, we are really jumping around here, but the fact that, you know, his eyes go different and then he goes over and starts messing with the screen really, really fast. And then after brutally murdering everyone in the room, puts the gun up to his own head and kills himself. That says to me that there's nothing in it for him. He's not mm-hmm. doing any of this of his own volition. It has to be a hack. Right. I, I just so, you know, is, does that feel a necessary concern that if he was really triggering these stations to blow up, uh, you know, I guess maybe we could see another time zero like situation where F8's head could wind up somewhere and easily reconstruct the robot. But I guess it felt more symbolic than anything. I really enjoyed it because it really connected back to the Borg, uh, with this idea of like, the sense referring to a hive mind that, you know, there's this whole, this whole idea of questioning their humanity and are they a person? I mean, Isaac Asimov, who got referenced in this episode, and I know who was close with Gene Roddenberry as he was initially working on Star Trek, really questioned this idea as well. Goldman talked a bit in uh, the, the Ready Room about this idea of the quote-unquote other uh, and, you know, with the thesis that he really wants to get across with the Borg in particular and the situation that he puts them in on this cube is that the Borg are victims, that these were people who were taken from their environments and really like forced to almost worship and fall into this collective hive mind. And I wonder with the Romulans possibly taking control of the sense if they're sort of going for a similar narrative there as well. And you see in both cases that there's almost, you know, slander against them, where the Borg were obviously considered huge enemies for such a, a long amount of time in TNG and Voyager, and now we see the ban on synths going on. It, it's a way to sort of look both back into the present and and in the past, as well as to how we can regard the other, how certain things make them dangerous to us, and how we can sort of look at them as a blanket because they might refer to one central edict as opposed to acknowledging their individuality. Right, and that also goes to when you go to this Borg reclamation project, they are referring to the species they're doing the surgery on as the nameless. And mm. it's very like depersonalizing and very detached. And it's, it's kind of the same idea at play here that this is not of us. Like they're not, they're less than us. They're other. Right. And I mean, Narek even says, like, this is a graveyard, uh, which, you know, he uses to more so make reference to the fact to uh, assuage the, the new trill worker of, hey, these zombie Borg are not going to attack you, even though, again, Mr. Scary Orientation Man did say, if your batch turns green, just run. But, you know, basically, the cube got cut off from the collective. And when that happens, the collective basically, like, ghosts them. And so they're technically considered dead. And it's interesting that, you know, when Narek sort of names the roles, he says there are grave robbers, which it seems like the Romulans are, because from what I perceive, Jess, it looks like what the Romulans are doing is they're sort of harvesting Borg implants and selling them, which is interesting. Feels a bit more like a Ferengi plot than a Romulan plot, but I guess beggars can't be choosers. Yeah, I I am really unclear about their motive here. And also, if your culture like 
has this blanket hate on for anything resembling this technology. Like, why would you get up to your elbows in it, exploiting it? Yeah, it's a good point. I guess, again, if, if they want to rebuild their empire, it's interesting because in the preview to this, you know, we had s- sort of seen some images of some of these Romulans in the Borg cube, and we thought, okay, clearly they're trying to harvest the technology to use it, or maybe they're trying to reawaken the Borg and have them fall under their spell, like what happened with Lore during Descent in TNG. But no, at least in this moment, they're using it for more of a financial purpose, which is, you know, it's always tested considering that in a Federation-run universe, money only takes you so far. But I guess if you're talking about this community that is in shambles trying to rebuild themselves to the great Romulan star empire that was, I guess this is the plan they have to go off of at this moment. Maybe the cube just sort of drifted into their territory and they happened to find it and came up with this sort of like get rich quick scheme but yeah i'm not entirely sure i didn't even know about the plans to sell it until goldsman talked about it on the ready room because that's not something i personally gleaned when i watched it i just thought they were just performing autopsies on the nameless to study them yeah i that was not clear to me at all either i was like oh mike did you read the is this in the third comic book and yeah i i didn't get that from it at all but it was clear like they there was there, you know, there's meat and there's parts and they seemed more interested in the parts than the meat. And God, that right. surgery was gross. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the whole removal of the ocular implants, which is the exact opposite of the beginning of Star Trek first contact. Yep. So I guess it all comes full circle. <laughs> like it, it might Things even come be in the, the eye or the eye comes out. It, it could even be the exact same guy. Yeah, actually, that would be a, a fun callback. But yeah, and we, like I mentioned before, we find out a bit more about Soji as well. I mean, to that point, she definitely sticks out in being a human amongst a Romulan project. But I think she also sticks out in that she definitely seems like the worker who is putting more of her heart into this than everybody else. I mean, she bristles at the nickname, the nameless. She does some sort of I don't know, it's it's not a Klingon death ritual because she's not screaming to the heavens that a warrior is headed there, but she does sort of give a proper send-off to the Borg as well. Uh, you know, I think when we get this really snake-like cinematic shot that takes us through the cube as Narek and Soji are having pillow talk, she talks about finding beauty in vulnerability. So I think it's clear that this is a passion project of hers, and I wonder whether or not that's going to either butt up against or help the Romulans in pursuit of what they're after. Well, it seems like somebody wants Soji there, that, and probably not Soji herself, uh, just based on what we learned about Dodge this episode, where everything in Dodge's resume and her transcripts and everything made her a perfect candidate to go to the Daystrom Institute. But there's not any record that she was ever actually at any of the places mentioned on her resume. So it was almost like they had to make this perfect on paper individual to infiltrate the Daystrom Institute. I would have to imagine that Soji is kind of the exact same thing here. Like she's been purpose built to be interested in this and to pursue this project for what end I'm not sure and for whom I'm not sure. 
Right. And, but and it's not like they also like they got handed a resume and don't have the knowledge. Right. And mm-hmm. it seems like I think Gerardi's Gerardi said that basically it seems like they came into existence th- like three years ago, which seems to put a timeline as to whether it was Maddox or whoever had created them out of data's DNA. But it's something where if they were sort of preloaded with not only a history, but the information that would support that history. So it's not like, you know, Soji's on there just trying to figure out. She's not an Edward Larkin, um, you know, from the short tracks trying <laughs> to basically figure out what to do. No, as she's it, fully as she competent. Goes. But she's competent right. in all the right areas. You know, she, including romance. Right. We're not we're not just dropping a three year old into the middle of the board cube as entertaining as that would be. So we finally we, we talked about this again in our preview podcast, Jess, that we saw Narek was romancing a and Issa Brione's character. We did not know whether it was Dodge or it turned out it was going to be Soji. And it's very clear that, you know, even though Narek is really keeping her at arm's length from a certain perspective, that it seems like they are going to be knocking boots for the time being, even though it seems like he's, he's conning her at the moment. Jess, this is the long con. Look, ladies, if your man wants to keep it all a secret, he's not your man. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't know, unless maybe she hopes Narek has some, some like, weird Christian Grey-like affinities where he's going to have the, you know, the, the transporter doors open and it turns out there's going to be an entirely different room full of weird Borg sex stuff. <laughs> and, I mean, I would not be surprised if that's what helps Soji get going, considering how much she's into this project. Look, there's got to be a lot of people in that era that are super into Borg stuff. That's all I'm saying. Right, I can imagine, uh, especially again, like when in Rome, you know, when when you're in the environment, make use of of what you're given. But it also, I don't know how much time passed between episodes one and two, but we went pretty quickly from meet cute to them, you know, waking up in bed together before going to work. Well, look, I, he is a smooth operator, and you know, it, the the chemistry was there, and they just acted on it because you know, once your planet's been destroyed, I feel like maybe you just act like there's no tomorrow all the time. Well, you say that, but then his sister comes in and sort of like says, no, can you can you give us the hurry up here, buddy? You're taking too slow here. Yeah. Yeah. And his sister, like, are, are, are we ready to call these guys the Lannisters of the of the Romulan Empire? It's yeah, it's really it's interesting. And it, what's really interesting, because Narek said last episode, remember, he's like, oh, I had a brother and then like looks wistfully off. And we assume like, OK, he had a brother and he died. But, like, was he making that up? Is there a third sibling? Could Rizzo have been, like, a male <laughs> Romulan who went un- who underwent, like, surgical... I mean, listen, I would not be surprised, considering we've seen how many characters have been, like, surgically remade. Like, we could see his brother go undercover as, like, a female Starfleet officer. I mean, I, I hope that's sensitively handled, if that's the direction they're oh, going. I, mean, I would, I was, yeah. I mean, I would absolutely as well. I'm, we, Star Trek is a, is a very progressive universe. So I, I have to imagine they would handle it with the utmost care if that's the case, but it seems like an odd place to, to interject that plot line. Right. So I guess then uh, from that supposition, it'd probably be that 
either there's a third sibling and maybe, you know, there was this really weird scene to finish things off, as we talked about between Rizzo and Narek, where Rizzo sort of alludes to like, okay, if you don't do your, you know, if your way doesn't work, which is essentially to sort of flirt his way into getting into her good graces, we're going to try my way. And if there's another disaster, it will consume us. And I, I wasn't sure if that quote unquote disaster was referring to Dodge's death or something that happened before. And if it's the latter, maybe it's something that, you know, maybe they were, the two of them were in the, the job, the, the job Vage with their brother and a certain operation took their brother's life. And that's something that haunts the two of them and brought them closer together in pursuit of this adamancy to get rid of androids. I'm sure we'll get that backstory if that's the case. Uh, but it seems like, it seems like they are dropping an inordinate number of like, People having the conversation, like Walking Dead does this all the time, and it would drive me crazy. When they had the time jump on the Walking Dead, then you would suddenly have these people having this conversation that was very meaningful, like, yes, it was like that time when that thing happened. Oh, yes, of course, the thing. And they both know what we're talking about, but the audience clearly doesn't. I don't love that as a storytelling device. Like, I feel like find a way to elegantly expose that information to us in the moment or shortly after that moment. Right, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly if we needed that as the final line. I mean, it's an interesting scene. I would say the reveal that Narek was undercover for the Jat Vash would have been a bigger, oh my god, had we not sort of seen it from preseason material. So I guess that's our fault for, for, you know, spoiling ourselves with our research. But it's an angle that I did not think. I didn't think he'd be working with his sister at a secret Romulan Illuminati-esque organization to secretly <laughs> wipe out all synthetic life. They got me there. Yeah, the Romulati. Yeah. <laughs> the Romulati. I mean, I'm so excited for the CBS series Undercover Romulan, Jess. It's going to be a real fun hit. Yeah. It, then the, the surprise at the end is that some of them are actually Vulcans. <laughs> exactly. But it's going to be like, imagine, you know, sitting around Starfleet and Commando Rizzo walks in and she's like, oh, uh, I, man, I love this sandwich. Did you know the Romulans invented the sandwich? Because, of course, the Romulans invented everything. Aren't Romulans great? <laughs> and then, like, in the end, like, her wig starts slipping off and, like, the little things covering up her ears start to starts to peel. Yeah. It, it doesn't end <laughs> yeah, exactly. well for Rizzo. But she's still keeping up with the guys. Yep. Yeah, and then we just cut to the confessional, and everyone's like, okay, I'm pretty sure that's a Romulan. And she's like, oh, I'm, I'm your best friend. I'm a human. I'm Rizzo. Yeah. It- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh dear. We're, we're cracking ourselves up and probably amusing nobody else. Uh, but I want to talk about a couple of the really fun Easter eggs that we got this episode, um, which I thought, I thought it was great. We got a shout out to the Gorn. Who saw that coming? Yeah, seriously. I feel like we haven't seen... I know they they had the Gorn show up in Enterprise, but other than that, I mean, we also had, uh, you know, when Picard visits Raffi at the very end, she's outfitted on the Vasquez rocks, which were a site of many things. I believe the first time they showed up was from the aforementioned Gorn fight in TOS. Yeah, and the, I feel like that's been lampshaded so many times now that when you shoot things at the Vasquez rocks now, it's like, oh yeah, that's those are the Gorn rocks. And so many things get shot out there. It's, it's really fun. Um, and I think, I think getting Rafi's backstory via the comment comics was really helpful. Uh, 
now I need to go back and watch it again because I think we only got a very small hint of the relationship that existed there. Like we got that she is the kind of person that he can like roll up with a bottle of his best wine and get her on his team. But there's so much in their backstory that we really didn't get on the episode itself. Right. And I mean, there's also, you know, it seems like there's no love lost between them. Like, like you said, there seems to be a familiarity there. And I mean, the reason, it seems like one of the reasons why Picard ends up calling her is because, like Shaban tells him after he breaks the news that he's going to go on his wild and crazy mission, like, you need a crew. You need somebody who is, you know, crazy enough to go with you, but doesn't like you so much as to risk their life for you. And it seems like Rafi sort of, you know, holds that middle ground at this point, which makes sense considering that, you know, she greets him by pointing a disruptor at him and then only takes him aboard when he offers her boobs. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I think that's the dynamic you want because I think he was such a figurehead when he was a captain and probably later an admiral that, that, that's not the, that's not the crew he needs. Like he's, he's mentioned it. Like he's not going to go back and like go collect Riker and, and Jordy and, and everybody and get the old band back together. He's got to have a new band for this. Yeah. And it's interesting as well. Cause I believe in the comic, I think she calls him like JL, which feels even more informal than, you know, when people would call him Jean Luc on the Enterprise D. So that seems to speak some sort of familiarity. Maybe it speaks to, like you said, who Admiral Picard is. Maybe Admiral Picard is more loose and fancy free. I'm not entirely sure, but it seems like we're going to get more from that relationship, assuming it just picks up right where we left off with a, a sit down as Picard tries to convince what seems like his first crew member to somehow find the ship and somehow get into space, even though he has not gotten approval from literally anybody to go into space just yet. Mike, do you think I could get people calling me JL? You know what? I think it could work. I mean, I think it makes more sense than... Because I feel like J- John Luke would probably be like a JLP. Yeah. You know, like you're, 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 you're a succinct JL. So I think it makes even more sense from your perspective. Yeah. It's, it's legit. But not legit is anything about this mission that Picard is trying to undertake. Uh, and I really loved this scene where he goes in and speaks to an admiral and <sighs> you think for a second that, well, of course it's Picard. He can be very persuasive. He said it last episode. He's like, he's a legendary diplomat. They're going to be thrilled that he's coming back into Starfleet. And that's really not what we get. I, this actually might have been my favorite scene from the episode. And I don't know why I'm like, I just love all these scenes where Picard is in these tense interviews because I, I love Picard and I don't want him to suffer. But at the same time, I feel like something we were missing from at least last episode was the Federation's side of things. Yep. Because, you know, we, su- we support Picard. We, we feel like we want to believe Picard. So when we hear last episode that, you know, it wasn't Starfleet, they pulled me from, you know, being able to rescue all these Romulans, they doomed them just because they hate them. You're like, yeah, screw the Federation. It's a bad organization. But this goes all the way back to what Gene Roddenberry initially put out and why he made Star Trek in the first place was really to show this idea that, like, nobody is really inherently evil. You know, nobody's going to say, like, evil will always triumph because good is dumb. <laughs> they they all have perspectives that they're working from. And then from their perspectives, you know, the, the Jedi are evil. From their perspectives, it feels like they are working towards a greater good for their own people's self-interest or their own self-interest. And we see that here where, like you said, Picard lays it all out there on the table 
and there's a pause and I love you know, the modern Star Trek's a bit hit or miss when it comes to, like, throwing in the swears, but I think this was a good drop here with the sheer effing hubris, and the music changes, Picard's expression changes, and you really see, like, oh, wow, yeah, he really burnt bridges on the way out. Uh, because, you know, maybe if he had left in better accords, they would have been like, yeah, sure, take take a runabout, go to the stars, have fun, have a great time, bring it back whenever you're ready, you know? But here, they are angry with him, let alone the mission does seem a little crazy, saying, I'm going to go find this man who's been missing for years because I think that Romulans are working undercover to kill all the androids. But, you know, this is also a guy who basically went out, you know, swinging, basically forswearing the Federation, and then went on TV like a couple days ago, repeating the exact same points. And I think what's really interesting as well is that the Feder, you know, the Admiral brings up the perspective of the Federation at the time, which was that the decision to, you know, remove the support from evacuating Romulus was done partially as sort of like a, a diplomatic move, because apparently 14 different species within the Federation had basically threatened to pull out of the Federation had they supported the efforts to evacuate Romulus, which I find super interesting. But it's one of those things where it's like, when you see both sides of the story, I won't say like, yeah, Starfleet totally should have doomed the, the Romulans, uh, you know, by not sending out an armada. But at the same time, when you have to keep so many parties happy, it's a really interesting wrinkle in that point of view that Picard's putting out. Yeah, and it certainly, it underlines that the Picard we're seeing now is not the Picard we left the last time we saw him. Because nobody would ever have yelled at that Picard. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. Like, nobody would ever, and he was never really, I can't think of a time over the course of the many years of Star Trek The Next Generation and four movies, there was never a point where he was ever wrong about something. And when people questioned him, it was usually that they were wrong. So this is also kind of fun. It's like, maybe there is no wrong here. Maybe there, maybe both sides have some good points. Right. And I mean, it ends on a really interesting note, though, because I mean, it's sort of they're both bloviating a bit. Picard literally is standing up for his values, saying, ignore me again at your cost. You're in peril, Admiral. And Clancy claps back with, like, the most damn response ever. There's no peril here. Only the pitiable delusions of a once great man desperate to matter. This is no longer your house, Jean-Luc. So do what you're good at. Go home. And it's like, if Picard didn't take the hint <laughs> from the from the front desk worker not recognizing his name and giving him that guest badge, which he puts on with such disdain, like, Picard realized probably in that moment that, yeah, 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 you, you can't come back so easily. Even Jean-Luc Picard cannot, you know, talk his way back into an organization that he just burned down on the way out. Yeah, and I'm sure there's going to be a point at which it becomes clear that he is right after all, but he's not as capital R right as he usually has been in situations like this. And I I thought it was really great to see him being capable of being taken down that savagely. Right. And that also comes right after this scene where, you know, he gets this horrible, fatal diagnosis. And so you can imagine that, like, 
he's a bit beaten back, but it seems like he's going to admirably pursue, like, okay, well, at least I'm going to Starfleet. I'm going to make sure I can still go into space no matter what. You know, he he's very pursuant about actually getting in there and pursuing his mission, especially now knowing that he does have an expiration date. And then to get beaten back on this again, Granted, again, he, you know, he's still going to keep pushing forward. He's going to get his old communicator badge and reach out to Rafi. But at the same time, I think the usual channels that Picard is expecting to go through are running a bit thin. And I think that's, that's going to be exciting as well for the character is we're going to see him have to go to some unorthodox measures because all the other conventional methods he's tried are all going to be unavailable. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that is. There's, there's some, there's a very Ocean's Eleven feel to this, like having to go out and collect the people and having to kind of dig around for like the, the sort of scummy element to bring them all together to go on this caper. I, I'm enjoying the feel of that because it's, it's a very morally more gray situation than we've ever seen Picard in before. But I want to go back and talk about this scene with the diagnosis because. Yeah. This is. This is an interesting moment that I felt like they didn't play it for as much gravitas as I thought that saying that Picard is dying, like this would be headline news in any other iteration of Star Trek. And this is just sort of, this is a very quiet scene. And the gravity of what he's been told really doesn't land as hard as it could. Right. And I think that's also appropriate to Picard's character, because like we see in the scene, like he's going to take one swallow of hard liquor and then basically be like, OK, kind of get my rubber stamp now to go into space. So it's almost like we're in Picard's mind at that point of like, OK, let's just sort of file that away and move on to the next thing. But like you said, it has literally grave circumstances. And I guess uh, we should sort of take some time for some TNG 101 here, uh, because this is a callback to the very last episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, where Picard, you know, when the doctor, I think Dr. Benayoun is his name from the Stargazer, says, yeah, your scan's ticked out well, except for that defect in the parietal lobe. That's actually not the first time Picard heard about that. Uh, when, in all good things, dot, 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 the series finale, when Picard's essentially jumping through three different time periods, he discovers through, like, a very deep scan by Beverly that he has a defect in his parietal lobe that can lead to a bunch of things. Uh, one of them is called Irremotic Syndrome, which is a neurological disorder that he does get in this future timeline from this episode that basically it, it sort of causes, like, confusion, delusions. It sort of is like... I, I think it's like a, an offshoot of Alzheimer's, it seems, from what's being talked about to the point where, you know, when he's in the future, he's trying to tell all these things. They're like, okay, well, these are just the ramblings of a guy with Irremotic Syndrome. You know, we, we shouldn't really believe him. And we thought at the end of that, that with Picard changing the timeline, that maybe that wouldn't happen. But I guess this is a constant. And like you said, it's very euphemistic. They don't outright say things. Uh, but Moritz, the doctor basically tells him, like, I don't know if he'll necessarily get Irremotic Syndrome. He said that it's going to be one of several symptoms, but they, quote-unquote, all end the same way. And, Jess, I'm assuming that way is not going to be a big old party at the end of the all saying, congratulations, you're healthy again. Yeah, it's it's not a Captain Picard Day situation, for no, sure. definitely not. But it's not clear, it's not clear where that endpoint is. And I think it's it's a little bit different to just say, oh, that's out there some somewhere, because I feel like Picard's philosophy on that would be like, well, yeah, but we're all going to die someday. So I got to 
just keep on trucking exactly the way I was going to. Now give me my, I can go to space stamp, please. Right. That's the thing is that they also said with the aeromotic syndrome, I believe uh, Crusher says it in all good things, her basically saying, yeah, people can live with aeromotic syndrome for years and just die at some point. Sometimes it takes a long time for the effects to actually happen, the synaptic synaptic, uh, pathways to break down. To that point, we know that Picard's been renewed for a season two, so I can't imagine it really hitting him anytime soon. But I wonder if this is going to change the way he looks at things. And not to say he's going to take on a more fatalistic or nihilistic view of things of like, well, I'm going to die anyway, so I might as well do this. But I'm not sure. You feel like that has to hang over his head. And it also leads to this beautiful shot when we get back to that of him, you know, in his study in the clock face that sort of represents time running out for him in more ways than one. But maybe it means that somewhere down the line, he does what Data did to him years ago, and he ends up sacrificing himself for another crew member, knowing that he would have died. You know, it's either go back to Earth and die a slow, painful death where you lose all the memories you've gained over the course of your life, or go out in a blaze of glory. You figure John Luke Picard would choose the latter over the former. I would imagine so, but that seems so on the nose. Like, and also, this parietal lobe thing has been hanging out for 20 years. Like, what's a few more years, right? Yeah, that's true. Again, we don't know, you know, even the doctor was like, well, it could be one of a few things. So it still seems fairly benign. It's just interesting that it got brought up. Maybe it goes thematically with this idea of a lot of obstacles standing in Picard's way to go through things the conventional method. And so he has to sort of sidestep things of like, despite me having the disease and despite Star's fleet not necessarily approving what I do, I'm still going to go through with my mission. So I can imagine it's just like a, a, I know a little thing that we're going to take with us, our own little parietal lobe defect that's going to be living with Picard and not necessarily manifest itself for a long time coming. But like you said, it, it got brought up, but Maybe the fact that they weren't sitting it as long as maybe we thought is also a representation of the fact that maybe this is something that we won't dote on for very long either, and it might just come back to bite him somewhere very, very far down the line. Right. I think they're just planting a seed, and how long it takes that seed to sprout into anything meaningful is really anybody's guess. It could be like five seasons down the line. Right, exactly. And in that's and in that case also, I think the writers have also given themselves like a nice out as well, right? To be like, well, then Picard's on this mission and then he's going to, you know, start stuff. I mean, I guess the one thing that it could still do besides killing him is, you know, if it's a slow onset, maybe in the middle of a very important mission, Picard yeah. starts to have a delusion or a confusion and that leads to yet another crew member dying, which, you know, when Jabon name drops some of the TNG cast members, Picard is adamant to be like, I don't want them coming because I know they're going to put their lives on the line for me, and I don't want that again. And so if that does end up happening again, I cannot imagine how further broken this guy is going to be. Is is Picard the series really prepared to bring back a beloved TNG cast member just to cr- kill them off? Well, I mean, we didn't talk about this last week, but Jess, did you follow the whole online discourse about the freak out over Jordy possibly being dead before this episode? No, I didn't. Please fill me in. Okay, so this actually ties back to the Countdown comic book, because as part of building the Romulan fleet all those years back, Picard actually enlisted the help of Jordy. 
And last time we saw Jordy, he was actually, I think, on Mars, maybe at a Utopia Planitia station, helping construct the fleet, true to his engineer nature. And when they said that, like, okay, like, the entire planet basically exploded, you know, the, the atmosphere is on fire, it burnt uh, a lot of fear in a lot of Trekkies of, oh, my God, wait, Jordy could have been on that planet. You know, wait, did Jordy just die in the Mars attack? But I think, you know, looking back on things that seem to not be the case, I think Picard would not have been so fixated on data if Jordy had died as well. I think he would have been much more depressed about the attack on Mars than just the effects it had on the Romulan evacuation if indeed one of his closest friends died. And also this week, Jabon actually mentioned Jordy by name. And I think he's, from what it seems like, he's a more of the softened good cop to Laris's bad cop. You, you don't think he would rub it in Picard's face by mentioning one of his dead former crew members. So I think it's safe to say Jordy is alive and well. Yeah, I and I would not be surprised to see him make an appearance, if not this season, then next season for sure, like maybe right after Whoopi Goldberg does. Yeah, though it is interesting, again, you know, when Picard was sort of looking into information for Data, you'd think he would contact him, would you not? Not only was he the chief engineer that worked a lot with Data, but he was also one of Data's best friends. Yeah, I mean, who knows more about Data than Jordy? Right. And so maybe we'll see that sometime as well. Again, we were speculating about this before the season that maybe some of these people that were still affiliated with the Federation had to sort of keep Picard away at arm's length, especially if he did really sort of scorch the Earth uh, and Romulus on the way out. But yeah, it's, um, I guess, you know, much like Dodge did not call Soji, some of these people just uh, are, are, are electing to leave people off their contact list when they're running around trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Yeah, I mean, who who can tell why we haven't heard from Jordy? Maybe he's just like five people down on the on the iPhone's favorite list. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you have people on speed dial, and look, Picard had so many crew members that somebody's going to be left off of that, you know, natural MySpace top eight. Yeah, in it, space. <laughs> MySpace top eight in space, so topical. <laughs> exactly. So topical. Um. Okay, Mike. I, I we jumped around quite a lot here, and. We were we were doing that non-linear thing that we saw Picard doing as he was going through Dodge's apartment, but we were doing it far less skillfully. I'm trying to think of what else we need to talk about. Um, there uh, also another great Easter egg was uh, the sign reading: "This facility has gone 5,843 days without an assimilation." Yeah, so let, I want to talk about that because we actually got a question about that from Just Joe. And, you know, you think initially that, oh, yeah, that's a fun little, you know, uh, fun little call to like, oh, this is just like any workplace, except it's not. But if you do the calculation, so 5,843 days is a little bit over 16 years. Mm. And I guess if you calculate it out, you can sort of figure out, I guess, either when the Borg Cube was claimed or when the last assimilation happened, which I'm not on the up and up with my Voyager timeline jess but i wonder how much that times out with the whole virus thing that's interesting i i would like someone to plot that out for me because now now i really want to know that makes a lot of sense then because yeah because that we don't know exactly what happened to the borg and i have to assume that that ties in somehow Right. So it could either be that, yes, the virus did work, but maybe this is like a remnant cube that got cut off and just happened to be drifting in space when the Romulans picked it up. Or maybe Janeway's attack did not work against the Borg Queen as much as she thought she did. And they were sort of like little sprouts here and there that still might have been existing by the time this cube was claimed. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell. Um, 
I, I think I think it's also interesting that we got this safety briefing of if your badge turns green, start running because they they have in the back of their minds the possibility that maybe everybody on the ship is not dead. Right, and I, I that's such an interesting idea to me because it's sort of like I don't know. I guess it's like Jurassic Park or like a, a weird like I don't know in depth zoo where essentially they're going into what's known as the gray zone, where apparently just these members of the collective just sort of wander around and work. And they're like, yeah, don't mind them. They're no harm. Like you're no harm. They're no harm to you. If you're no harm to them, don't worry about them. They're like bees. They won't sting you. But then if your badge turns green, you should GTFO. Also, when we went into the Romulan cube, we got like some slow motion shots of what looks like people with former Borg implants working, so I guess while there have been some autopsies, I guess some people have been able to have their implants removed and like be fully assimilated back into society as humans. So are are we given to understand that there's like 57 of nines hanging out on this ship? I yeah, I guess that's the case where I guess thank God for 7 of 9 because they were able to really figure out this technology to, you know, remove everybody's implants, but yeah, that's what I saw and I wonder how much that's going to also factor into Soji. I mean, who knows? Maybe Hughes on there. And maybe that's going to be one of the speaking of, you know, people who were able to overcome being a Borg and turn back into what they once were. I think that would be a really interesting encounter for Soji as well, considering how affiliated she is with like the psychology of what it is to be a, a Borg and part of the collective. And we know that Jonathan Del Arco is going to be back somehow. So yeah. that's as good a reason as any to bring it back. My other thought is maybe the people walking around with Borg stuff is just like, after you do the Borg surgery, you're like, hey, that one looks cool. Can we keep that instead of selling it? And can I just wear it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you, oh, you can work, but, you know, or, or like, hey, can I keep this? Yeah, but you, in exchange, you have to work for us. You know, like you're almost paying off the implants that you're keeping on. Yeah, or, or it's more like there's no office dress code around here. You can wear whatever you want. And there's a sort of trend that's brought sprouted up after we had all this stuff around. Right. There are no Fridays in space. So like every day is casual, except everyone else has to wear these like garish red orange uniforms when they walk in there. Yeah, that does kind of take away from that theory, because I think you wear the bright red uniform just so that people can tell at a glance whether you are a you are a person who's entirely meat or if you are a person that's got some parts in you. And it's interesting because when we first saw those pictures, I know there was a lot of speculation as to whether they were in prison, you know, whether these were like prison jumpsuits. But no, it turns out that they're more so like, I wouldn't say hazmat suits, but to your point, it seems like they're more preparatory for workers to not only identify themselves, maybe also comp- prepare themselves for the conditions of the cube as well. So, I mean, we have really have not seen that much of a Borg cube besides the few times in, you know, TNG and Voyager. So it'll be cool to spend more time in it. Granted, it, it's slowly becoming more and more Romulan-like, complete with green force fields. But to see exactly what Borg architecture looks like, you know, down to the nitty-gritty pipes that are running through is going to be really interesting. I guess that part of it is interesting. There's a lot of parts of Borg society that I've never really felt like I needed to know all that much about. Like I felt like every subsequent reveal about what it was like to be a Borg that we got in Voyager just sort of took away from it. It's like, leave them mysterious. You don't, we don't have to know. Mm. So I guess, again, it goes, it goes back to Goldsman, I think, thesis of Picard, I guess, intention here. Of, hey, let's show, not necessarily that the Borg aren't all that bad, but like, 
you see what the Borg's intentions are and the individual over the groups. I guess the the MO of Picard is that the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many when it comes to valuing individuality above group mentality. And I guess, you know, in spending so much time in a Borg cube, which I think we really affiliate with this idea of a hive mind and a dangerous group, they're really trying to break our expectations of what we thought about this big bad and really show that, okay, no, these are individuals that were under some very bad circumstances. But when you take out the implants, as disgusting as they may be, there still are people there. Yeah, the Borg had some good ideas, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I can't wait for that string of uh, of Twitter threads. Uh, Someone's going to come out as a Borg apologist, and I'm I'm not going to be here for that. I mean, it might be Picard. Or no, you know what it is? It's going to be Soji. Soji's going to be the Borg apologist. Oh God! Yeah, I, I I'm glad that we don't get glimpses of what the future internet looks like. She's definitely yeah. on oh, Reddit, a- sticking up for Borg all the time. Yeah, that's interesting as well. Is that you know, if you look at even like Enterprise, which I think was what like late '90s, early 2000s, they don't really talk about internet in the 23rd and 24th century. So. I know they're trying to keep Ron and Barry's vision alive of what this ideal utopia is, but maybe they feel like it eventually transcends the internet, considering how easily we're able to communicate with one another. But I feel like that's something that the Orville has really talked about a bit that Star Trek really hasn't. And to your point, yeah, I I don't really necessarily want to uh, look on these poor, like, synth and Romulan, uh, synth Romulan and Borg profiles on their social media where they just get continuously trashed by all these uh, egg people. Yeah, yeah, for real. Um, Although maybe it's just that in the utopian Roddenberry vision of the future, everyone decided they just had no patience for the internet, so nobody uses it anymore. Yeah, that could be true as well. And maybe they just got to like the highest optimal speed. Uh, and when they started doing internet at warp speed, they're like, eh, you know what? We can go out and do things now. You know, we don't need to stay in all day and, you know, talk into microphones with people about episodes of Star Trek. We can actually go out and see distant planets and have adventures. Well, right. So in the future, this will be future civilizations will look back on this podcast as a really strange little oddity and a quirk of our time. But you know they're absolutely going to love it, though, because all Star Trek captains love odd relics from the 20th and 21st century. Every single one of them, to a man, loves that stuff from the past. (laughs) Well, we're happy to be a part of it, then. Yes, so any Starfleet captains listening to us from the distant future, thanks for tuning in. And to everybody that is listening to us in the present, thank you for tuning in. Uh, We love that we are getting such a great reception on these episodes and that people are really engaging with us and they have a lot of really smart and interesting questions about the about the series. Like this has been a really a lot of fun to podcast about so far. Yeah, it's been, you know, the premiere, I think, went over like gangbusters for a lot of people. And, you know, thank you for everyone who reached out to us. I know that, you know, we're, we're a little quick on the feedback, but we want to get these out to you guys in a, in a timely fashion. And yeah, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to talk through. And while I'm happy to do it here on the mic with you, Jess, I like hearing from people online as well. So obviously, give us all of your theories as well about, you know, how you think the Jat Vash will be involved, what you think we're going to see in terms of Soji's involvement with everything, how Picard's going to rustle up his crew exactly. Is Commodore O a Vulcan or is she a secret ro- an undercover Romulan as well? We'll find out at the end of the episode uh, or at the Where Are They Now special. But yeah, there's so much going on with Star Trek Picard and uh, it's it's been a lot to take in, but it's been very enjoyable and 
you know, Goldsman said that the first three episodes are going to be like the first chapter. So we're about to see the end of Act One, essentially. And that makes me very excited and intrigued as to what's going to happen, considering that we've only met what? One, two members of Picard's crew at this point, and the dude's got to get into space soon. Yeah, it, I really feel like we we need him in space at some point. Um, all of this wandering around on Earth is, yeah. There's a there's a finite limit to how much we can take. Plus, I believe the character breakdown said that Narek's eventually going to join with Picard, which is going to make things very interesting. I mean, I know Picard's mission is going to have him eventually seek out Soji to protect her, but it'll be interesting to see how Narek ends up, you know, going from the Romulan reclamation site and being able to make his way onto Picard's ship, especially knowing now all the subterfuge he's capable of. I mean, I don't know. Do you think he'll romance Picard as well, Jess? He just use that method for everybody at this point? What if what if that's not Narek? What if that's his brother? Oh, okay. Oh, he could be another twin. Yeah, there's so many twins out here. I'm saying it's it's like Narek's brother Farrick. Yeah, exactly. Like basically it's Star Trek Picard is a hidden doublement commercial. It's true. Like everyone on the series will be revealed to have had a twin by the end of the season. The good news is you'll always have like an on hand stunt double. Should you need to do any big action scenes? Yeah, and also you get a great death scene, and everybody gets to be upset about it, and then you can come back and be like, psych, that was my twin. Right, without even needing to go down to the Genesis planet. Yeah, it, it's true. It, it, it's great. And you know, it's more points in favor of bringing back Will Riker, because he's got a transporter-created duplicate that's not a twin and not a clone. Right, exactly. Just someone to do a little bit of a parent trap-esque double screen situation with. Yeah, he's going to give him the old runaround. Yeah, exactly. So I guess we shall see. Picard has to get up to the to space first. So it looks like we're progressing a bit on that front. At least we'll find out a bit more about him and Raffi and if, he, if he'll be able to convince her to, you know, take him wherever he wants to go by the end of this. It might be a tough thing to do, but as Picard said, he can be very persuasive, just maybe not with people he insulted so much in the past. Yeah, he probably didn't insult her so much. Probably didn't, like, call her up in the middle of the night and ask her to sing Baby Beluga to him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or uh, well, I'm assuming he called her up on the banana phone and she was happy to pick up. <laughs> Clearly, she's got a sense of humor about herself um, or she wouldn't be even pondering this for a second. You would hope so with that name. One would hope. Uh, so, Mike, let's talk a little bit about how people can get in touch with us this week to tell us that there are demented ramblings have turned them off of Star Trek forever. Oh, boy. Well, I hope not. I hope people are going to reach out to us with great things, uh, whether you have feedback from this current podcast, which, by the way, thank you to all of you who reached out. Mea culpa. We did forget to mention that the lovely Easter egg of Blue Skies playing to start off the premiere, considering those are the last things we heard from the TNG crew and Nemesis. It was cool to welcome that back. Really fun little Easter egg there. But if you have any other comments about that or theories, you can always reach out to us. Jess is at Haymaker Hattie. I am at a Mike Bloom type. You can also reach out to at Post Show Recaps. We're usually recording these on Friday nights. So if you happen to be watching Picard on Thursday or Friday and you have questions or theories, throw them out there. You can also email feedback at postshowrecaps.com if you have any longer 
theories or thoughts, and you know we'll we'll get them through the proper channels so that that comes in priority one, and we'll address them. But like Jess said, I'm super excited to be talking, you know, with everybody every week, both online and off. And I'm super excited next week because we are going to be joined by our own Borg Queen, in a manner of speaking, the great Rob Sesternino, who is a huge fan of TNG, is going to guest on this podcast to talk through episode three of Picard. I'm very intrigued to see what Rob thinks of Picard so far, you know, as someone who has devoted himself to a love of TNG, what he thinks about the new take on it, all the stuff with the Borg and the Romulans, and especially, I'm assuming, where the story goes and all the twists that are going to unfold over the course of episode three. I'm pretty sure Rob's just going to get on and we're going to say, so, Rob, tell us what you think. And he'll say, I can't believe you had the nerve to invite me onto this podcast, the sheer effing hubris of the two of you. Exactly. And then it's just the camera's going to start swirling and the music's going to pick up and we're all going to, they're going to say, you know what? Go home, Jess and Mike. This is not your home anymore. Do what you do best and hang up the mic. Yeah. I, I, so everybody's got to tune in for that, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine so. If anything, to get Rob's thoughts on Star Trek, which I know he talked with you a bit about in the first couple seasons of Discovery, but I feel like it's something that he really enjoys that he doesn't talk about too, too much on the mic. So it's always good to get his thoughts. Uh, I know that I've also been covering Picard for CBR.com. I put all the links in the show notes, but basically I did an episode recap, which I'll be doing every week. I talked to the director of this episode, which is actually going to be the director of the first three episodes, Hanalee Culpepper, who is the first ever female director of a Star Trek pilot. And she did an awesome job, as we talked about. So we talked a lot about how she got into it, working with Patrick Stewart, the choices she made, and of course, being a, a fantastic record breaker. And uh, if you want a little bit more insight as to the canonical history of the possible illness that Picard may have, I did put out an article as well that sort of talks about how that relates to the end of TNG. So be sure to check all that out. I'll be sure to put out more writing about all things Picard every week because I'm just having so much fun with the show, Jess. Yeah, you are doing a smashing job with all of your coverage, Mike. It's been really a joy to follow it. And very glad that you are doing this in-depth reporting on all the background of Picard, because I think it really helps us cover the show accurately. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun to sort of look back at things, see how they connect. You know, I think something that we've really gleaned, at least from the first couple episodes, is that this particularly is a show that's done with people who have so much admiration for TNG. And so I think all the callbacks that are made, even if there are things like the Jat Vash that we don't exactly love as additions to the canon, a lot of stuff is made as sort of a love letter and a callback to the past and how it informs the future. And I think it's very graciously done. So I'm excited to see where we go from here. And I'm glad it doesn't mean dead Geordi, at least at this moment, because that would just be sad. I'm I'm hoping we don't get any horrible reveals that anybody is dead, apart from people we already know are dead. Well, then just put them in the transporter and get a clone. Exactly. Yeah, or throw them on the Genesis planet. You got lots of ways to bring people back. Death isn't final in the future. Right, exactly. You sling yourself around the sun and go back in time to prevent things. Right, you can get yourself stuck in a time loop until you get it right. Exactly. So there, you have a myriad of ways, especially, you know, at this point, which aside from disco is is the latest point in star trek chronological history there's so many so many things you could delve into that people have tried before hell you can try the, even the picard maneuver that i'm sure dr benyazin uh, is still sort of reeling from considering he was on the ship when it first got pulled off oh that's right he was on the stargazer that's that's a fun thing 
Yeah, and he was with, uh, you know, poor, uh, poor Mr. Crusher before he ended up getting crushed and left poor Wesley uh, without a daddy and poor Beverly a widow. That's that's fantastic, Mike. That's that's why we have you here. But you know what? It isn't the future. It is the present. And in the present, you know what's dead? This episode of this podcast, Mike. <laughs> well, you know what? We could still be shambling around muttering to ourselves, much like Borg do. But listen, that's a totally different podcast that I do with a different person. <laughs> Listeners, if your phones turn green, run. Right. And uh, this phone's turning green, guys. So take care, everybody. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>